0: This is really Devin's podcast, and I'm like the court jester who gets to tag along.
1: Except he's less funny than me, so it's like, what's the point of you? (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics, controversies, and scholarship Dealing with bioethics, medicine, technology,
0: and anything else we're interested in.
1: We're your hosts, Devin Stahl from Waco, Texas.
0: And I'm Tyler Gibb from Kalamazoo, Michigan.
1: And yes, that's a real place.
0: Devin, the, our guest today is going to be Alyssa Bergart, who is a physician and a you know, clinical ethicist at Stanford but also she's very active on social media. So I wanna ask you,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what is your favorite TikTok dance?
1: Okay, I'm gonna do it right now. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm really sorry for everybody who's just listening to this as an audiophile because I am an amazing dancer and I'm really prolific on TikTok. So uh-huh. um, so yeah, I'm just gonna do that now. and okay. And folks can look me up later. Never slide. Never. All right, well, Tyler, I know you didn't go to med school, but if you were to go to med school, what kind of doctor do you think you'd want to be?
0: Um, well, I thought about going to medical school. I know. Um, so what did
1: you think you wanted to do?
0: Um, I think that I would have been probably a, I don't know, maybe a pediatrician. Yeah. All of the other specialties seem really hard. Like surgery i can like i can't imagine like cutting into somebody it's like the i don't know the aversion to like blood and guts and i've so in my role as a as an ethicist in the hospital is like i've been able to see some surgeries or been able to go to surgical you know into the operating room and and see how they do things and just kind of be a fly on the wall and it is gruesome and <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's um, a lot more, like, physical than you'd think it was. Like, a lot of surgery, mm-hmm. like, is – you're, like, wrenching things. and Like, they're more like carpenters than I mm-hmm. maybe would have assumed. So, yeah, it's not, like, as delicate as it seems on TV.
0: Yeah, especially um, orthopedic surgery when they're, mm-hmm. like, fixing bones and joints. And, yeah. and they're using, like, power saws and drills and, like, pulling it bits apart and cutting things out.
1: So not your yeah, thing. Th-
0: not my thing, yeah.
1: I mean, I'd be s- – I'd be sort of worried if you were like, well, I mean, I can totally imagine cutting into people. That would. Like. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a psychiatrist too, because I'm—I don't know.
1: Yeah.
0: I like to sit and think. <laughs> hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if
0: psychiatrists do that, but I like the idea of sitting in a in a room with a corduroy blazer with leather elbowed, being able to talk about. Actually, but I don't talk. I don't like to talk about feelings, so I don't want to do that Oh, anymore. yeah,
1: that would make it hard. But you, you, I mean, you look good in a corduroy blazer, so that's like, yeah. that's probably a good enough reason to be a psychiatrist.
0: Yeah. I would just be the psychiatrist who doesn't ask anybody about their feelings.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so a British psychiatrist.
0: That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I would just ask people about their mothers.
1: But I love that you're like, um, I would be a pediatrician because that doesn't seem hard. Because like, nothing about sick children seems hard. Goodness. Yeah,
0: I mean... Yeah. Well, I don't like children, so <laughs> I, I don't mind seeing kids sick and suffering.
1: No, that's not
0: true. <laughs> that's not true. Um, no, I was thinking more like technically difficult, you know, like cutting into people or like, you know, like Alyssa, who we're going to talk about talk with today is, you know, she's involved in pediatric transplant surgery, which seems like the most complicated high stakes type of surgical practice
1: yeah I mean give, doing transplant with children because if you need a transplant as a child I mean if you need a transplant as anybody that's I mean you're there's a reason you need that and that it's so it's pretty mm. dire but especially with children that seems like it could be really emotionally difficult as well yeah but probably the payoff is pretty sweet too
0: so if you were to be a doctor what kind of doctor would you be
1: probably well first of all a great one
0: <laughs> okay okay <laughs>
1: I'm sure that if I had decided to go that way, I would have been phenomenal. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, I mean, probably like a general practitioner. I think I like the idea of like, you know, you get to do a little of everything. You get to see people at all points of their life. Um, you really get mm-hmm. to know your patients. So like a, um, a primary care provider, maybe like in a clinic. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That seems like it would be very worthwhile. I know a lot of people don't end up doing that because it, it's not the one that like pays the most um, and and everyone has a ton of debt out of med school. But that seems like the one, I think the the one, the professions where you're, or the fields where you really get to know people, that would have been something I would have, I think I would have enjoyed maybe more so yeah. than, than like surgery or things where you're not spending as much time with people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting teaching in a medical school and watching students, you know, from the time that they enter medical school, trying to decide what specialty they're interested in and kind of their identity gets shaped a lot by what choices they make as far as specialties go.
1: Mm -hmm. And yeah, and sometimes they like, they think they definitely want to do something and then they do it and actually they didn't really like it or... Mm -hmm. You know they they kind of liked it, but then they did something else, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, this really was amazing." So sometimes mm-hmm. they come in with an idea, and it it gets totally transformed when they start doing rotation. So the if, if you're a med student, you have to go through you have to try everything, um, which has all sorts of there's that's that's a controversial way to do med school on some level because do you really have to know everything in order to be a specialist? But there is some wisdom in and both letting students explore that so they can find their field. And then they kind of know a little bit about everything, which you would think inevitably helps them be better physicians.
0: And it's such an interesting way of training, right? Because no other profession, professional training program, like law school, for example, it's not how they approach it whatsoever. You don't have to try to be a tax attorney and a litigator and, you know, mergers and acquisition attorney as you're going through the law school process. So. It's just a unique way of training. Uh, welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Today, we are talking with Alyssa Bergart, who is a physician and bioethicist at Stanford University. Welcome, Alyssa.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So we start off during this, uh, this first season, we're asking everybody if they consider themselves to be a bioethicist.
2: Apparently, I even had you put it in my intro.
0: <laughs> so what what makes you a bioethicist?
2: You know, I've been doing bioethics since I was an undergraduate, and my very first job out of college was as a assistant at a bioethics center, and I think I've just been in this space for such a long time that I've feels like I'm as much a bioethicist as I am a physician.
0: Tell us a little bit about how you got into it then. So you said as an undergrad, where did you go? Like kind of what questions sparked your interest in bioethics?
2: I went to a school and I will tell you it is a real place. It is called the University of Judaism. It's in Los Angeles. Um, It's actually not called that anymore. It's called American Jewish University now. But yeah, so I was going to junior college in Los Angeles and thinking about maybe going to medical school and trying to figure out what i was going to do with my life and i was working as a an assistant in the physics lab at at the college i attended and uh there was a woman who said hey could you help me edit this application i'm applying to this bioethics program and i said what's that and in reading her application and then looking into the school i thought wow it sounds like all the things that i find really interesting i'd uh, grown up going to Catholic school and spent a lot of time having to argue with uh, nuns and other people about what I thought was right. (laughs) And uh, it felt very natural to find a a job where I could think about all the things I thought were interesting about innovative science and taking care of, uh, you know, what was the right thing to do for people who were sick. And those things really resonated resonated with me uh, from a very young age. Probably the, you didn't know the term bioethics, but the probably the earliest memory I have is of, uh, on the cover of Time Magazine, when it was Dolly the sheep first, you know, the cloned sheep first came out. I just remember being just completely fascinated by that whole situation and, and really poring over all of those um, news articles that I could find on that issue. And that's the first real like public issue that I remember in bioethics that, that caught my attention that has really stayed with me.
1: Well, hot take. What's your opinion? Should we be cloning all the sheep or not? All the sheep should be cloned. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Good for sure. For sure. There's no ethical issues. They're all resolved. I think that's right. We've resolved all those cloning issues, <laughs> and no one is opposed to like there being ten times as many sheep as people in the world. Hundred percent. Hundred percent.
0: So you, um, so tell us about where you went to medical school and kind of what your your, if you have formal training in ethics, like what what did you do
2: oh sure so well my first bout of training in ethics was was as an undergraduate at the university of judaism and then i I actually graduated from college a year early and i hadn't taken the mcat yet i didn't really know what my path was going to be to medicine but i really thought you know going to medical school seemed like such a big commitment i should probably try to go learn some more about people who are ill before I uh, get involved in that. Should probably spend a little more time in a hospital. And so I ended up uh, very fortuitously, there was a position that opened up at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. And so I worked there uh, part-time as an assistant in the Ethics Center and part-time I was pipetting little bits of uh, stuff in (laughs) in a laboratory across campus. Um, and I was just really getting an opportunity to, to see what, what clinical ethics really looked like. And it was a just eye-opening experience because you know I didn't really have any medical training at that point. I had a good foundation in medical ethics. I knew about you know research ethics. I knew a fair bit about uh, kind of just very basic philosophy and um, some of the decisions that were coming up. But suddenly to be rounding in a big metropolitan hospital on, you know 10 to 20 patients a day, all of whom had really complicated family situations or really complicated ethical issues that were coming up, or, you know, name your clinical ethics problem. Um, and my job was really to make friends with all the social workers and meet all the nurses and meet all the doctors and be an approachable face for our service. And it was it was incredible. I um, I saw many many cases uh, from the NICU all the way to you know really elderly people we cared for. I saw people of a lot of different religious beliefs that all influenced the decisions they were making. And it really was a wonderful foundation in terms of getting a good sense of what what are all the perspectives in the room and uh, an eye opening experience about the the kind of core communication issues between the way that we're trained as clinicians and the way that families approach critical illness that I, I've really continued to take with me uh, throughout this. Um, so I worked there at Cedars for for about a year and it was transformational experience. And then I ended up working at UCSF for two years for the IRB. Uh, for the Human Research Protections Program. And that was really a deep dive into research ethics and federal regulations around the research that we do. Got to, got to read just thousands of protocols of really interesting work that was being done at UCSF uh, at the time and met some really, really fantastic people who were doing work in that space. And uh, what was nice about it, I remember sitting at my desk the end of my first day and I thought, God, nobody died today. That was so cool.
1: Um, that's, that's my take was... on parenting too. As long as no one died today, I feel like that the day was successful. That's yeah. COVID, Wait. new parent, that's my bar.
2: You know, mm-hmm. and I, I think that, um, first of all, I think your bar is set very appropriately. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, I think until I, until I had moved on to UCSF into that different space, I didn't realize how emotionally burned out I was. You know, I didn't have any medical experience to, or like medical knowledge. I had these adorable notes from that first job when I was 20 years old and someone slapped a white coat on me and I didn't know what a ventilator was. So I have these adorable notes of like uh, CPR and what it stands for and like CRRT. And you know, I just, I didn't know anything about anything. I still make those notes. Yeah, well, fair. (laughs) Uh, the alternative yeah. is to go to medical school, which is what I ended up doing. Yeah. But um, you know, and so it was. Uh, I, I just think it really gave me such a solid appreciation for the emotional burden of the work. And uh, shockingly, I still just wanted more of it. I I really have been eager to keep clinical ethics a part of my a part of my life and a part of my career. I think it made me a better medical student, made me, made me a better doctor, you know, year after year, and I, I did end up getting additional training. I at, uh, attended medical school at Loyola University, Chicago, and part of why I picked that program was because they had a master's in ethics that I could do while I was in medical school, and so because medical school wasn't hard enough, I thought, you know it would be a great <laughs> idea, you guys, let's do another degree at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, which may be why I was a little extra stressed out during those years. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's interesting. I think that most people who are physicians in the kind of the bioethics space are physicians first and then see kind of the moral implications or the ethical issues and get more training in that. But it sounds like you were the opposite.
2: Totally. And that's, it is a very, um, it's definitely more unusual in that perspective, Mm -hmm um you know it's interesting to teach medical students ethical issues and try to to help them navigate ethical questions and you know and so often in medical school you're so burdened by all the other things that you're trying to learn i always thought it was like trying to drink from a you know watering like a from a hose or whatever Mm -hmm. and uh i think a lot of times because those ethical conundrums you're so far from being an attending when you're a medical student that sometimes it's hard to have the the intellectual space to engage in something that doesn't have a clear answer you're not gonna be able to answer it on a you know multiple choice test question necessarily Um, and there just aren't that many ethics questions that come up on on the exams that they take and i think Mm -hmm. medical education is very focused on examination so for many physicians, I don't think it's until they're deeper into their practice that they feel this calling to explore those issues mm-hmm. more. Um, but yeah, I'm the weirdo that did it first.
0: Yeah, I, I, like I, the, I like the analogy of, or the the metaphor of drinking from a fire hose because I had a, a medical student come up to me who was kind of at the end of his time at the, at the university. And um, I asked him about a question that we had talked about in one of the sessions. And he was, I mean, he's a really engaged, Bright student. He was just blank faced, like glassy eyed. He's like, Dr. Gibb, I gotta tell you. He's like, you know what? Medical school is like a hot dog eating contest. And <laughs> we're just trying to get through it. And your individual session may have been like the most delicious hot dog that I've ever eaten, but it's still like number 13 of the 43 hot dogs that I had to eat. And I don't remember what it was like. Yeah, it's like yeah. that makes a lot of
1: sense. That is a disgusting analogy. <laughs> I was just saying, I think
2: eating contests are Absolutely vile, apologies to any of your (laughs) listeners that are into that. Um, Medical education is so challenging right now because there's so much that we expect people to learn in a relatively short period of time. And frankly, we ask them to regurgitate it for a test and then regurgitate it for another test and then uh, probably forget about it.
1: Tyler, have you had to write, I mean, maybe both of you have had to write those MBME questions. So like questions for the step exam for medical students trying to write an ethic, a good ethics question in a multiple choice format is so difficult. And we all know that they don't often get asked on those exams sometimes, right? They're in there, but man, it is really hard to write like a good, because ethics just does not lend itself really well to uh, Mm -hmm. A versus B. It's a lot of like gray, you like want them to write an essay, but they hate that. So you can't make them do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, I think, I, I feel
2: like as an ethics consultant, what I'm constantly finding myself saying is, did you ask the patient? Have mm-hmm. you talked to the patient? Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and it's in no way because people are, are not interested in talking to their patients. They're talking to their patients about other things. But I think that um, the questions that, that the three of us are trying to deal with on a pretty regular basis are terrifying for some of our colleagues because you know, it really gets into like, no, no one wants to do it wrong. And it can be really challenging to allow yourself to have the curiosity to potentially fail in a conversation about something as serious as, to, as whether or not someone might die. So yeah, I, I agree that multiple choice doesn't tend to lend itself to uh, getting into the nitty gritty of that.
0: And, and I think if somebody is doing ethics well or if they're at least curious about ethics, you should be able to argue for at least half of the answers as being potentially right, so.
2: Oh yeah, anyway. but nobody likes that on a test. No. Round upon.
0: Apparently not. Another interesting thing about your your career so far, Alyssa, is that you chose a specialty that isn't one that is traditionally seen as being kind of ethics heavy. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, I I I would imagine that most people who are um, doing clinical ethics um, from the physician perspective, are either internist or you know, palliative care docs, sometimes ICU docs, maybe like a neonatologist. Yeah. A lot of
2: neonatologists.
0: Yeah. So what do you do and how did you pick that specialty?
2: Yeah, I am a pediatric transplant anesthesiologist, which is a, a real niche. Mm-hmm. That's, it sounds really um, boring.
1: Like you'd put people to super sleep a lot. Boring.
2: I wanted something that was ultra relaxing, mm-hmm. uh, I was like, I don't know, dermatology or anesthesiology, <laughs> and not not to in any way diminish the work of dermatologists who are doing very important work. It's just very different work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. I never thought that I was going to be an anesthesiologist when I was, you know, working at Cedars Sinai. I, I had a lot of people who were doing palliative care who I really appreciated um, what they brought to the table. Um, I thought oncology was such an interesting specialty. So I kind of thought about doing a lot of different things. And the longer, when I got, when I finally got to medical school, I actually uh, pretty quickly found that I loved the operating room. Um, A, one of our senior surgeons invited me to uh, go to the operating room with her and I got to learn how to scrub and I got to, um, you know, assist in an operation and, you know, I wasn't doing don't freak out people i was literally just like holding a retractor for the <laughs> surgeon i made no decisions at all it was the washing um, of your
1: hands that really got you into this field is that what you're like just scrubbing my hands the really hand hard. washing
2: was key yeah um, there's actually a lot of drama around that because the 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 nurses who are very oriented in um rules and regulations were, were deeply concerned that i might wash my hands wrong even though I'd gone through like the required hand-washing training and Mm -hmm. the surgeon watched me, wash my hands to make sure I did a really effective job. But, um, anyway, and then I I just, I, I loved the experience. It was, it really awakened this light in me that I hadn't realized was there. And it was terrifying because I thought, do I really want to be a surgeon? And, uh, I, the more surgery that I participated in, the more I loved it. And I actually was applying to to general surgery residency when um, basically my husband begged me, please just check out anesthesia. Maybe you'll like it. I've heard it's nice. Uh, we had several friends who were anesthesiologists who said, yeah, just check it out. Maybe you'll like it. And I totally did it as a, as a one-off. I was like, whatever. Yeah, I'm going to do this rotation and then I'm going to be a surgeon and it'll be fine. And sure enough, I did this anesthesia rotation and I thought, wow, this is like everything I love about being in the operating room. It's everything I love about the ICU. You get to manage your own ventilator. Uh, you get to play with all the drugs. It's very fun. Mm-hmm. There's something really exciting about meeting new people. I'm very extroverted. You may have picked up on that. So like the idea that I get to meet new people every day and like try to build a relationship really fast. I love that. Uh, and so, I, and I also thought, you know, if I become a surgeon, I'll probably learn how to do a handful of surgeries really, really well. And I'll do those day in and day out. But as an anesthesiologist, uh, I get to hang out with some of my favorite people who are surgeons. So I get to spend time with a lot of different surgeons who I really respect and love working with. And it's just, it's really fun. I I love having this like magical ability to take away people's pain and anxiety, uh, to in a very safe way uh temporarily subdue people's consciousness and bring them back at a, in a hopefully a, a healthier position where their surgical thing has been fixed so um so I love I love being an anesthesiologist I don't like things that are easy so I thought I don't know let's take care of kids <laughs> and then I thought I don't know I love transplant let's do that and so I just I get to work with such a fabulous group of people and and I really just, I love the work. I love uh, the excitement of being in the operating room. And I think it's funny because there's, there's a lot of people who think, oh, to be an ethicist, you need to be like an oncologist or you need to be a neonatologist. And it's, it's absurd. There's ethical issues every time you get a patient and a, in a clinical environment of any way, of any form. Um, there's, there's plenty of opportunities for us to, to explore that space.
1: Can we ask you about social media and sort of what you're doing there? <laughs> no, I'm a very private person, can so you I, definitely cannot ask me about Can that. I ask you about bikinis and and what you ha- <laughs> what, what uh, affiliation you have with, uh, with that? Uh, with, for, with the, for with the for bikini? Or against, yeah, for or against, four bikini. against bikinis. <laughs> I am pro people getting to wear
2: what they feel makes them comfortable and wearing what they feel is appropriate for the situation they are in. That's what I'm feeling. But I think what you're asking me about is the whole um, med bikini phenomenon that took over Twitter uh, over the summer. Yeah, what do you know about that? So there was a very controversial paper that came out in the Journal of Vascular Surgery. It was really looking at, you know, what does professionalism mean and what does it look like? And this, this group had really replicated two previous studies that had been done. They basically just did the same thing as this other study. And they sort of spied on the trainees, the like newly graduating people in their, in their specialty and spied on their social media accounts and made a lot of um, assertions about who was professional and who wasn't and what behaviors were professional and which behaviors were not professional. And unfortunately, I think they had a very narrow view of what that meant and what does it mean to be professional? And, you know, as an ethicist, I take professionalism very seriously, but I think it's, it moves way beyond whether somebody's wearing a swimsuit in a photo that they put on their Facebook page.
1: Um, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, the, the idea that that's the limit of professionalism is crazy. Because that's one of the things they flagged as unprofessional, right? So if, if on your social media, you, you want to become a doctor, you shouldn't have any pictures of yourself in a swimsuit and they they did they flag bikinis in particular they did they said they flagged
2: potentially unprofessional behavior as in including a, a number of different things one of which was uh was i don't I, it, I think they used the term bikini and then they also it was like holding an alcoholic beverage mm. um and so you know it's and they only had men looking at it, and you know, it wasn't exactly a diverse panel of people. They didn't dig deep into the professionalism literature, and, and certainly, there's been a lot written about being a professional physician and what that means. That I, I just think was lost in in the work. And part of the response, the, there was a letter to the editor that my colleague, um, a really phenomenal medical student named Trisha. Pendergrass, and I wrote together was really just saying, like, it's unprofessional to do bad science, you know, if you don't know how to do social science, reach out to the people who can do that. If you have a question that requires a research methodology that you are not familiar with, learn how to do it and learn how to do it really well. And I think that it's um, because we in medicine often have, frankly, a derision for much of social science. It means that editorial boards just don't have the people necessarily on there who can adequately reviews at work and, and point out where the weaknesses lie, you know? So they, the invited editorial that went with the paper was just this glowing review of how great it was. And I just thought like, wow, this was really missing the boat here. There's a lot of things I care a lot more about. You know, I care a lot more about whether we have, um, you know, we know that we have racism and ableism and sexism and major problems in medicine and so the idea that we would boil it down to a lot of really superficial issues by spying on a specific group of trainees i just don't think it does service to the to to professionalism for
1: our groups so this went like sort of viral on uh social media because my social media then was full of physicians and residents <laughs> posting pictures of themselves in bikinis just say And saying, you were like,
2: why is everyone wearing a swimsuit? It did
1: take yeah. me a while. I was like, what's going on here? I mean, good for you, but like, what? why is everybody doing this? So then I mm-hmm. uh, med bikini became this like incredible hashtag. So that was a, like a funny summer of that.
0: Yeah. Were yeah, surprised-
2: London Robinson was the person who actually coined that term, uh, that hashtag med bikini. So she really brought uh, brought that attention forth.
0: Were you surprised that that paper got all the way through like submission and peer review and all the way to publication?
2: No, not even remotely because it was copied. They copied two previous papers that studied, I think, surgical residents. And one of them was, I forget which other population, but they just, they just repeated the same garbage paper, garbage work that had been done before that had the same. I'd seen those other papers before and been really irritated with them, but they were Old enough at that point that it didn't occur to me to really criticize them, and when then another one came out, I thought, God, is this the only professionalism research that we're going to see come out of medicine? Is just the same ridiculous stuff? You know, I mean, in med, the the just the focus on med bikini in general, I think got a lot more attention than it really deserves necessarily, in the fact that. It's very, um, you know, it's sort of a spicy topic and like, oh, you're talking about swimsuits. Um, <laughs> but, you know, again, we've got horrible racism pervading our country, absolutely influencing our population of, of clinicians who are able to
1: to do their best work. And so there's, there's just such bigger fish to fry. It reminds me of the, did you, I'm sure you guys saw this, um, maybe the listeners didn't because it was sort of niche, but there were some researchers who were Gauging how attractive women with endometriosis were, and, oh, and they stand by that work hard. Oh, they do, and and there were women who were doing this as well, but they I think it was retracted recently, so yeah, it, only due to massive public outcry. But yeah. my understanding is that the
2: uh, the researchers just feel that they were that their science was suppressed by you know people who are too liberal. <laughs>
0: What I thought was interesting about the the summer of Med Bikini was that, and maybe it was just something that I was picking up from the tone of of people I respect in in social media and stuff, and that, and and kind of what you were just expressing too, that just like frustration that this is what we have to be talking about instead of something more substantial, or that this is that this is what's getting all of the publicity instead of the the huge issues about systemic racism or Uh, vulnerable populations being marginalized and stuff
2: yeah i think part of the issue too you know obviously this was all happening in the middle of uh the the first covid summer i say first because who knows
1: (laughs) oh (laughs) Um,
2: who knows and uh you know that there was something i think candy coated about it this idea that like oh you can just I, i mean listen a bunch of white people can totally post pictures of themselves in swimsuits and not genuinely be concerned that they're not gonna get a job. And yet, you know, black women can't necessarily wear their hair natural because they might be deemed as their existence being somehow inherently unprofessional because we have these absurd, you know, whiteness centered ideals of what professionalism means. And I just think that this word professionalism can totally be weaponized against so many people and just preventing human beings from doing their best work.
0: What other things or what other topics are you working on or are you interested in in working on? Because obviously, I mean Med Bikini was kind of a distraction this this summer and that's not something that you obviously were expecting or or were planning on being involved with or being active about. Um, so what what are your topics that you are interested in? researching or writing about
1: you're saying her entire research portfolio was not how do I get myself in a bikini out there more without prejudice
0: yeah it, it, that's actually mine I right I, I try to post as many pictures of myself in my speedo as I can
1: oh everyone check out our website because we will definitely have a picture of Tyler in his speedo to accompany this episode yes I mean
2: if you don't I'll be really disappointed yeah. <laughs> now that we've laid it out there mm-hmm. uh, you know I've been interested in a lot of different things I think that one of the beauties of ethics as it is such a broad encompassing issue that you can kind of come up with your career can continue to evolve over time which is something I've really appreciated so but I would say that lately uh, especially since since covid just a much greater interest in explicitly advocating for the rights of disabled people um, especially within medicine which I don't think I I a hundred percent did not recognize earlier in my career how much ableism there is just sort of baked into medicine and the 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 power and the luxury that we have to name what is a disease and what is a disability. So I've done a lot of work on crisis standards of care, um, especially over the last six months, and I think that's something that I I think will continue to be a feature of the of the work that I do in in doing clinical ethics at a large children's hospital, we take care of a lot of children who have significant disabilities. And so, and I'm, you know, living in that uh, that space as well and, and helping clinicians and families, uh, you know, make some pretty difficult decisions sometimes around those issues. So that's something that interests me a lot. I've always been really into transplants, part of what drove me to transplant anesthesia. So still think about that. And uh, gender issues is something that that I also really care really deeply about so presented on some gender equity issues over the last two years uh, at the American Society of Bioethics and Humanities and I mean that in a really expansive way In that you know not just gender in terms of it's often thought of as a, as a binary and it's just men and women but really we have we have an, a lot of human beings that don't don't see themselves as one or the other or live somewhere in between. And really we should have a space where everybody's able to do their best work and and be fully human.
1: It's it's interesting that you say that. So right when I was, um, my last year, when I was teaching at a med school, we were doing training with med students on um, ambiguous genitalia. I'm not even sure that that's a great phrase, but when children are born intersex and it was unexpected, how do you even talk to parents about their child, what pronouns do you use? How do you explain what's going on? Is there a rush to surgery? Or do you sort of wait and, and caution them to wait? And this was, it was so interesting because the med students totally got it. They're like, yeah, this is complicated. Um, they, once you learn the medicine of it, once you learn how frequent it actually is, you think, well, this is something we have to address. And a lot of times it was the older physicians who were like, really not okay with uncomfortable. yeah they were so uncomfortable and they were like well you have to assign a gender what will their aunt and uncle think if they don't have a pronoun and it was and our med students were like what are you talking about and they were like you just don't get it because you you guys uh you're not parents yet so you don't know but it was really interesting to see like that intergenerational conflict around these issues
2: absolutely and and i think that's a really great example too of how you know when you work in an environment where you're you're providing medical education it's 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 not a one-way situation you know we can we sh- we can and should be learning from each other and i think there are a lot of ways in which our students are just they've learned things from a different environment and they can bring things to the table that will actually help all of us be better too
0: can you explain what you mean by ableism i think that's a term that people may not be familiar with
2: sure so ableism is if you think about for example if I say racism, you probably have a sense in your mind of of what that means. And essentially, ableism is when you are making decisions or comments or you have ideals that are are related to the preferential treatment of people who have able bodies, bodies that are, quote, normal or typical, versus uh, or having derision or uh, dismissal of people who have disabled bodies.
1: And it's, uh, so what, how do you feel about training then, Alyssa, these med students? Cause I actually was just, I just was talking to a bunch of Tyler's med students about ableism and sort of the history of disability in these, um, the ways in which medicine can sort of define what the normal body is and then actually normalize bodies through things like surgery. So how do you talk to, and I I find that when I talk to physicians about this, some of them get really defensive. Like I'm not, you know, that's not me. And, or like, I don't even believe that physicians are doing this, but I see it happen all the time. So how do you talk to this about this with physicians and med students?
2: I think you and I are navigating some similar space in that. And, you know, at a pediatric hospital, I, I think it is a little bit easier in that we because we take care of so many children with disabilities, it's much easier to have an explicit conversation because nobody blames kids for anything that's happened to them. And uh, nobody faults children for like not being able to work. Like there's all these sorts of other kind of eugenics based issues that just continue to pervade our society in terms of how we believe whose life is worth living, and who is a, quote, valuable member of society, whatever that means. And so in having those conversations, I, I actually just gave a lecture yesterday to a group of, of fellows, and I said, you know, we're going to talk about medical ableism, and I had sent them a brief piece written by a disabled bioethicist, and not one of them had ever even heard that term before. Mm-hmm. And so I think that part of what i'm learning is once you see it it's it's impossible to unsee it which i think is a very good thing and i think it goes for for racism and i think it goes for sexism and i think that we're all getting well maybe not all i know that i am trying to get better and better at seeing it when it's happening and especially identifying my own implicit biases because we all have those too and when i'm trying to engage in that, in the topic of ableism with trainees who don't necessarily have any experience with it, I try to start with stories. And I try to start with, you know, what's been kind of my journey in terms of recognizing my own ableism and the process of trying to deconstruct that during, during my career. And trying to to reach out to people as well. I mean, I have a number of people in my family who who have some very severe disabilities, some of them are ones that they acquired some of them are things that uh, they were born with. And I just had never thought of that as part of that conversation, but I think I'm getting better at putting all of those things together and trying to engage on a more visceral level with whether it's students or trainees or
1: um, Other people who are out there working in the community. So you're just trying to take on ableism and racism and sexism in the work that you do. I mean, I really, like I said, I like (laughs) to keep it simple. Yep. Yep. (laughs) And,
2: uh, I have a passion problem, which is that I, I just really want everyone to have a good life and I want there to be true equality of opportunity. And, uh, it means I spend a lot of my time being frustrated and I spend a lot of time, uh, trying to evaluate
1: myself because I've still got so much to learn. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here. And thanks for all the wonderful work that you're doing around all these social justice issues. And we should plug what will be a future podcast, I assume. You want to tell us about your podcast?
2: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm preparing to launch a podcast, uh, Just Desserts, Social Justice is Sweet, where I'm hoping to just have some lovely conversations with experts in social justice. And we'll eat our favorite. We're going to eat
1: our feelings by uh, having dessert. That sounds really fun. We're normally just drinking during our podcast, but (laughs) eating dessert sounds fun too.
2: (laughs) It's much earlier on the West Coast, so I'm drinking water, but you know, next time. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks,
0: thanks, Alyssa. It was nice to talk to you. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Special thanks to Chris Wright for writing and performing our theme music. For show notes, visit bioethicsforthepeople.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. What's your what's your handle or your your username on TikTok so we can find you? Um
1: Dr. DJ (laughs) (laughs) Dance-A-Lot.
0: DJ (laughs) Dance-A-Lot.